the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. Tuesday, December 7th, 2021. We'll get into that date a little bit more, too. Uh, We were talking about it in the last couple of hours, you bet. And um, as it is Tuesday in our third hour, we have usually both Hallmans today. Uh, Lewis has a bye, but we have Hugh Hallman, former mayor of Tempe, attorney, educator, um, and dear friend and guest host of this show in studio with us. Hugh Hallman, welcome back. Great to see you, my friend. It is fabulous to be present in this fine studio, the studio of wisdom and intellect, <laughs> uh, courage and faith. Uh-huh. Uh, I do think I need to stick with the uh, the stock in trade. Yeah. And in honor of my son, Lewis, uh, I'm going to throw out some numbers and demonstrate that you and I can tear them apart because Lewis continues to beat us up about the things we really need to know okay. about numbers. Okay. And uh, I've made fun of you about your math, of yep. talking about uh, if you take the total population in the United States and use that as the as the divider and divide the number of deaths, that you get a much different number than you do if you divide the number of deaths by the total number of cases that have been reported. Why is that? I make fun of that kind of analysis because... You can't be a mortality rate statistic if you've never been exposed to the virus. You first have to be exposed to be considered whether or not you you uh, had a risk of mortality, mortality or immortality. What they call the cases. infection rate. The infection right? the rate. Infection that's correct. Rate. Exactly. As right. opposed to case mortality. Uh, case, case fatality. Case rate. fatality rate. And that's been our biggest problem. Right. We've right. made fun of the fact that the federal government and now the world, the World Health Organization, the CDC, and most local governments calculate the mortality rate for COVID-19 very differently than we calculate it for every other disease. They calculate it based on cases that have been reported. Well, they, uh, it, with the flu, for example, the CDC does a lot of work to estimate the number of people who have actually gotten the flu in a season and use that number to divide the number of deaths with to get a mortality rate because they don't assume it's just the people who showed up in doctor's offices or hospitals because lots of people get the flu, just stay home, and that's the way it is. Well, we have that in COVID as well, but we don't We've not handled it the same way. It's, it's apples and oranges, uh, or at least apples to green apples and red apples. Mm-hmm. But it, it really is a silly process. And it has smelled like, to me, that the reason for that is politics, that the left wanted to shut down Donald Trump's economy. They wanted to uh, blame him for deaths, uh, for failure of handling things in certain ways. And at the end of the day, uh, the Biden administration has stepped into things, and it has not particularly gotten better. It's more or less the same stuff. And now they're stuck with a narrative that has us all constantly panicked, an economy that's um, shakier than it should be, and worse, socialization that's a disaster. So Can I pause you for a second, or will it end? interrupt you. No, go ahead. I don't want tell me if you need to continue the point. I just want to underscore when you say it's essentially the same goings on under this administration versus the last. I would argue but with well, a year and a right. half of information. That, that's right. I would argue not only with a year of learning but also a vaccine. Correct. I yes. just think that's really important in understanding it's 
maybe arguably worse than it was a year ago because in, of the, in the body count. But and also because we are doing this with a year's worth of knowledge and a vaccine. I just needed to go ahead. No, I, th- I think that's a fair point to make that notwithstanding the fact that there's been a vaccine and a lot of learning about yeah. this and, and educating ourselves about what works uh, in the hospital to save people's lives and other kinds of. It's not, uh, a, it's not novel. Any, the novelty is worn yeah, off. That's exactly that right. Way. Boy, yeah. has it. Yeah. Uh, But here's an example of the data we have rather uh, pointing out the data we should have. So, for example, uh, trying to figure out, we just gave an example of what the real mortality rate is. We could figure that out. Mm -hmm. It is it is something that is knowable. How would one know that one would take a sample of people who've never been vaccinated and see what proportion of those people show antibodies, which means they got infected and had a, quote, asymptomatic or mild case. Uh, And in those instances, we would then add them or the same proportion of people to the to the denominator. And we would then actually be able to calculate the real fatality rate because we'd have the number of deaths over the total percentage of the population that's gotten the infection. But the cases that we know of are only those people who had to get tested for one reason or another, not the folks who stayed home, never came into work as a result uh, during the pandemic when folks were shirking from home or working from home. They got COVID and never were tested because they had asymptomatic cases or very mild cases and they thought they had a cold. So we could and some people who just never knew they had it. right? Correct. And we, we could absolutely know the answer to that question and really calculate a mortality rate. So, Mr. Biden uh, and your vice president, Ms. Harris, you guys could get that data now and start explaining why things have gotten better. Why haven't you done that? Another great example, I think, is trying to figure out uh, the breakthrough case rate. We could get that data. In fact, the CDC started to collect it. And uh, you pointed out very early on that they took that information off the website but before they did, they f- discovered that, in fact, people who were getting COVID breakthrough cases were being tested in hospitals when they'd come in for automobile accidents and tested positive. And they put that kind of footnote into their own information about breakthrough cases, refusing to supply that kind of explanation when it was for people who had never been vaccinated. That's the kind of politics that are going on. But here's maybe the, the example I think is most important. There is data out there that I think demonstrates that people are better off now getting vaccinated than not being vaccinated. Let me give you an example. We know the total number of deaths in Arizona of people 65 and over from the beginning of the pandemic to yesterday. That's 16,194 people. Well, if you divide that number by the total number of cases in that same demographic, which is 157,694, for those of you who are writing quickly, listen to the podcast. Again, you can write the numbers down, do the math yourself. But if you divide the number of total deaths over the total number of cases Uh, in that demographic, people 65 and over, you come up with a mortality rate. It's a case mortality rate. We've already made fun of that. But that case mortality rate is 10.3%. But that's actually not the way to do it. Because what we want to know is... Pause just for the slow with math like myself. The point point being 65 plus chance of dying if you get COVID is about... For the entire period was 10.3%. If you got COVID and you were 65 and over... You had a 90% survival. Rate. 90% survive, but still 10.3% yeah, yeah, die. Yeah. That's, that's stunning. Mm-hmm. Well, what we now really should know is how good's the vaccine? Yeah. Well, many people are taking the uh, current uh, deaths over the current number of cases and coming up with that answer and comparing the two. 
that the rate went from 10.3% down to, and it did go down significantly. Because if you just take the last six months, most of the people, now that's not all of them, but the vaccines have now been available long enough. And 65 and overs were early on receivers, recipients. Early on, they were reaching almost 80% vaccination rate. We could do the math better, and we don't have the real data, but I'm giving you a thumbnail. The error here is not in the thumb, the error is in the lack of data, but the thumbnail gives you the point. If you take the people who were 65 and over and died in the last six months from COVID or with COVID, we don't know which it is, there were 2,889 people. And of that demographic, 65 and over, there were 42,328 cases. What's that get you? It gets you a case mortality rate of 6.83%. That means it fell from 10.3% to 6.83%. That's a significant drop in death rates in the period of people since vaccines have been available and likely people who've been vaccinated. That's why I use the 65 and over. But that's even not right because we're comparing it to all time. And that all time number includes the last six months. So we're measuring the wrong things. We want to measure before vaccine and after vaccine. Well, why isn't that data easily available? It's not. So you have to do the hard math. And what did I do? I took all time deaths and subtracted out the deaths in the last six months, and that gave me the number of deaths prior to six months. Then I had to do the same kind of math off the Arizona Department of Health Services website, and I took total number of cases in that group, 65 and over, and subtracted the last six months' cases and got the number of cases prior to six months. So I could look at the mortality rate, the case mortality rate, before six months and after six months. We could actually get the data of before vaccine and after vaccine, but the feds have it and won't release it. We know very well that that data is being collected. When somebody's going into the hospital, when somebody's died, were they vaccinated or not? And they got a COVID case. Well, in this case, what you find out is the actual mortality rate before vaccines, and I'm using that as a thumbnail because that's a really rough thing, was 11.5%. And now it's down once vaccines, likely breakthrough cases, to 6.8%. In the, nearly, in the 65 plus population. In the 65 plus, it's nearly cut in half. Yeah. That tells me vaccines are saving people's lives. Now, there are lots of other things that have come along to save those people's lives, and we could figure that out. Why aren't we getting that kind of information? Why is the government failing to supply that? I have a theory on that, which we will visit upon when we return. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Hugh Hallman. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Jay and the Americans, we lost Jay Black this year. Uh, interesting thing about this. Um, welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh Hallman is my guest, as he is every Tuesday in our third hour. Jay and the Americans, just a different thinking of America. There were four band members, and they all grew up uh, with different names than they performed with. They all, they all, um, they all Americanized, if you will, their names. They were all Jewish boys, four Jewish boys. That was kind of the ethic back then, wasn't it? The best. They, they wanted – there was an assimilationist ethic in a way, and uh, they even went so far as to name their band Jay and the Americans. They thought America was something 
worth celebrating. And it's just it's just you don't see that anymore. It's just it's a disuniting of America in, of sorts that's transpired over the culture over the last several decades. I, I, I just I think you're exactly right. He says on the Patriot KKNT <laughs> 960. <laughs> All right. Hugh Hallman, you gave us some interesting uh, numbers and statistics and math. It would be wonderful if the newspapers would do what you did. Uh, it, that took you some some work to research. Because the data is still so very, very poor, I, I have a real bug in my in my um, in my elbow over the fact that the CDC was reporting a useful number. It actually was with the breakthrough deaths and, cases. and hospitalizations yeah. and cases. Hospital, sorry, hospitals and deaths, and um, and they just stopped because the number was becoming counter narrative to. To uh, get vaccinated, to get, get vaccinated. vaccinated, yeah, because you won't go to the hospital and you won't die. That was remember Joe Biden. That was over the summer. Get vaccinated, you won't go to the hospital and you won't die, and that was uh, increasingly proving to be not the case. So I don't know what the number of breakthrough fatalities is at this point, but when they stopped reporting it, it was at the twenty thousand mark or so, and that was a few months ago. Why? Um, why are they not doing the math you did in reporting the things you're reporting? It's it's I guess relatable to the same question I had in what you were when you were talking earlier. Why is there an investment in not talking about the improvement if you pitch it your way? They could do this, and I think the problem. You tell me if I'm wrong or if I have uh, have this um, mistakenly. I think the problem is it runs counter to the narrative they are so invested in, which is that the vaccine not only helps you but saves the other guy. Absolutely. I think that's the problem. Every good thing I agree with you and I think you say about the vaccine is really about helping yourself if you obtained abstract covid. That's what the vaccine provably helps. Right. The the it the mitigates the it, it it mitigates the problems of your covid experience and possibly death. The basketball player version of what you're saying was we get vaccinated for the other person. Right. And the right answer is that's just not true. Right. You get vaccinated because it reduces the likelihood right. of getting sick in the first instance, and it appears reduces symptoms if you uh, do get a case and reduces the probability of death as a result. I can sit here and say that very confidently based on the fact that I do numbers. Folks, you get to decide if you want to get vaccinated. My family's advice is, my advice to my family members is, get vaccinated. It looks pretty clear that uh, notwithstanding that I may end up with horns in another year and a half or two years or, you know, body parts fall off, uh, at the moment it provides some benefit. Part of the reason I thought it was good for me is because I travel around a lot. I was violating all the sort of social protocols early on because I had to continue to travel. I had to help a guy in North northern california who was in a bad spot and being taken advantage of by a contractor and i had to fly up and help him in person uh, uh in march of of the first year of oh COVID. no the government knows how to restrict your liberty without uh physically passing a law that's Absolutely. correct and there was no one out and and the the social stigma of traveling at all was terrible in fact i had the car company accuse me of stealing a car because they had so many cars in their inventory stuffing their garage full they couldn't find the car when i'd returned it yeah that's how bad it was yeah uh, and so, but, but there is an investment in not disrupting that beyond, narrative, or or ask, answering having to answer too many terrible questions. When's the last time you heard an, a journalist ask uh, Doctor Walensky or Anthony Fauci, um, "Can the vaccinated spread the virus?" They will not ask that question, and they don't want to answer it. And 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 all of that is a pathetic part of the narrative of having invested in the wrong 
messaging. Right. We have a country that could have been brought together by this pandemic, and yet somehow it has further divided. That's incredible to me. The kind of challenges that we've all faced could have been faced together. And the opening scenes were if Donald Trump said one thing, then the left had to say the other. Recall at the very beginning that Donald Trump was racist for shutting down transportation means from China, Mm -hmm. that is, people coming in from China, and he was called a racist, and politicians in New York went into Chinatown and talked about how Donald Trump was a racist. That was the opening narrative here, Mm -hmm. and it continued. Mm -hmm. I won't take Donald Trump's vaccine. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was our vice president. That narrative was more important. The politics were more important than trying to pull folks together. The last time I know in my lifetime that people came together, and it was at a, for a much briefer time than I'd hoped, was 9-11. Yeah. But at least that happened. And the politics that, got it set aside. December 7th. That's, let's talk about that now. Today is a day that shall live in infamy yeah. and an important date. And what did the U.S. do to mark that date? Now, there was, thankfully, uh, a, a, an event uh, that commemorated the attack on Pearl Harbor, and there were veterans who had, were at Pearl Harbor who were honored today. That, I think, should have been more widespread. Yeah. In the challenges we face in the current international environment, reminding the citizenry of this country what it means to protect this nation— and the sacrifices families have made, the 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 recognition of that does not uh, fail to note that we interned hundreds of thousands of Americans uh, based on their ethnicity. Mm-hmm. That was a wrong thing to do. Yep. There's not a person today, I think, who would defend that. Right. Uh, with all that said, we can both celebrate the great of our community and acknowledge its failings. But December 7th, 1941, the 80th anniversary today, in my view, should have been more broadly understood and celebrated by those in power. So I was before you got here, I was reading to the audience uh, what Winston Churchill wrote in his diary and how he said he slept one of the well, I can I can I can write I I I can read what he said. He said, being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful, because he knew the US was now joining the cause and the moral lights in Europe would not be blown out because finally the US was now brought into this and he knew the US was a can do country. He talks earlier about having studied the Civil War and knowing what the United States can do when it rolls up its sleeves. It kind of goes back to a call I had earlier in the show, Hugh, that the the can-do um, spirit <clears throat> of America is not what is appreciable today. There's an investment in the narrative that we are a sick country. There's an investment in the narrative of the former governor of New York who said America was never that great. Uh, there is something that took us from let's roll in 2001 – to let's curl up under a bed and hide and panic. There's a deliberate political angle to all this. And that's, I think, in some ways why we don't see December 7th as infamous as we used to. We'll pick up on that or anything else on the other side of this break. I have a few things to go over with you as well. I'm Seth Leapson. He's Hugh Hallman. 602 Be right back.
Music, 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 music. Um, that's interesting. We came in with Galveston there, Jimmy Webb and Glenn Campbell. You were wanting to make a point about music, too. I was just re-watching the old documentary, The Wrecking Crew. It's not that old. I, I highly encourage it about that great studio musician group in California that was on that song, on so many a great song, so many television theme shows. But we were talking earlier about music and how you can learn history from music. You're a history teacher. You're a school founder. You're an educator. Did you want to make another point about music? You said you had one. Yeah, I think the most powerful point uh, for me about music is that it often is the driver that makes history. Yeah. That if you really think about uh, the the daily use of it, we often put on music to put us in the mood, Mm -hmm. whatever that mood you might Mm -hmm. need. Uh, athletes put on music that will get them up and get their mm-hmm. get their blood flowing, and Fight it is songs exactly. And and it is not the the. Why do you think uh, we have marching bands in high school? Right, in, indeed, indeed, right. and to war. Right, and the the point is that uh, think of the music that has moved countries mm-hmm. into battle mm-hmm. uh, from the U.S. Uh, in the Revolutionary War to the U.S. in the Civil War. To the Soviet Union being formed up, very moving music that that lit people's fire and moved them to do things that they might not otherwise have done, and that's perhaps one of the most important pieces of music that I I, I try to keep in mind that we can use it for good or ill. That you can motivate yeah, people no, to do all right. kinds of stuff and motivate in, in the righteousness of their cause, at least in in the many cases of Americana war music. Yeah. I think of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. You were making reference to it just now. Well, and look at how look at how the music that we're our children are being exposed to today. And you know, I'm not a prude, but we are setting a tone of the culture mm-hmm. in the music that gives messages and has a, a violent culture. edge to it. That we then wonder why we have increases in violence among our young people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. especially our young males. Yeah, it's kind of an absent-minded thought when it comes to art generally that only one side of this picture ever gets painted or one side of the story ever gets told. When you think about art and as uplifting, yeah, as uh, that's right, yeah, it, it's either if if we think art is, all art is neutral, um, no one thinks that, right? They think of art as good art as uplifting. Um, if art can improve someone, if good art can improve something, a country, a culture, a civility, anything, there has to be something about bad art, right? And we if treat good music it, can do good things. Bad music must do bad things. Yeah, but clearly you 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 don't like the First Amendment, and you know that's expression, not speech, and oh, therefore it's all protected. Of course, that. I'm listening I'm to you all the time. That. No, I'm not. I think it's a brilliant point. His point being that the founders understood the word speech to mean something much more circumscribed than expression. Uh, the sort of squeezing out of stuff. Uh, and ultimately that speech has now being been turned into something that is weaponized and therefore it is violence itself and can be censored, which is turning the entire First Amendment on its head. The uh, How we got here is, of course, that music, the bad kind of music, and uh, there's a lot of it out there, is being used to cause young people especially, to learn lessons that are very hard to unlearn. And stealing from Lewis's uh, songbook last week about Aristotelian notions of habit Mm -hmm. and that we are, through the repetition of really bad examples, um, causing our youth to learn really bad lessons. Anyone who disagrees, I just want to... Develop bad habits. No, right. No, but anyone who disagrees, just think about the concept and the notion of while pregnant playing, you know, Mozart, Bach, classical music, 
Or would you rather do what they're doing at, I don't, I don't even know what the companies are anymore, Def Jam Records. I don't know, whatever it is, right? No one would do that. Right. No one would really do that. Not a, responsible, not a responsible parent. If I can flesh out just one last point on my First Amendment argument, because I only know a few people that make it, and I think I'm right. I've not been – the founders were actually skilled in the use of language. Imagine that. Imagine that. And so if they thought speech were to mean expression, there would have been no point – at all in, for them to talk about free exercise of religion in that same amendment any more than they would have had to have said freedom of the press. Expression would be an umbrella for all of that. They didn't mean expression. They meant speech. That's correct. And I think the Supreme Court cases that have come on in the last couple hundred years have stretched that envelope yep, right. in the hopes of protection. Yep. And I would make this counter argument as well. We had uh, uh, Justice Thomas recently point out that the New York Times standard, which protects uh, speakers uh, in their ability to libel and slander effectively. Yes, please don't write me that I'm using terms that are, uh, are wrongly stated here, but that you can say really horrible things about elected officials and public figures, all in the name of free speech. And yet, isn't it interesting, uh, and he proposed that we actually ex- re-examine that, that the court should at some point re-examine that, that standard. Isn't it interesting that Great Britain has a much more flexible standard in that regard, and yep. yet they still exercise a pretty good level of speech. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Not an unfree country. And an un, unwritten First Amendment. That's right. That's right. Because why? They know that this is a truth irrespective of whether someone wrote it down or not, that people are entitled to their free speech and conscience. Let me, let me end on that and come right back. That's one of the things about country music, and I keep threatening to do a show on this, and I haven't. I have a couple people I could do it with. Perhaps even you're one of them, but that's Brad Paisley, by the way. What country music does, distinct from all, I think, almost all other forms of of music, is it actually does talk about the daily, the workaday lives of so many people, right? Cancer, God, family, substance abuse, all kinds, alcohol. All kinds of things, right? It really did divorce. Love and romance yeah. in the old-fashioned way. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it really – it touches a different part of the American spirit, soul, and heart country music. I don't even know if you're a country music fan. I know you're a Sinatra fan. I don't know if you're a country I fan. am, but it uh, it represents the flyover countries. And in the states that are on the coast, it represents the uh, rural areas. Yahoo's. Yep. It's called the, the, we're called Yahoo's there, but I think. Well, my family comes from Mojave County here. Yeah. So uh, Kingman, Arizona, actually Hackberry. So uh, th- that's most of my family is uh, way out of earshot at the moment. I want to get into a country. And there is actually, for people who don't know, there is an Arizona accent. The original Arizonans here for 150 really? years, you bet. And I'll take you to places. And I'd love to them. hear it. I'm, I'm called by those folks, folks, Hugh Lee. Are you really? I'm Hugh Lee. Hugh Lee. Hugh Lee. I love it. I love it. Um, there was one more thing I, th- I wanted to say about music and your point, and then I want to talk to you about something a little more controversial. Maybe this is controversial. I don't know. But your battle song point, uh, the songs that we use to, to change history, that music can be used to learn history, but your point was very well put and taken that music can also change history. Where would we be without such things as the Battle Hymn of the Republic, for example? Um, 
And it goes to a part of the character, too, of America. Do you remember that lyric in that song as he, capital H, died to make men holy, we shall die to make men free, his truth mm-hmm. keeps marching on? That explains a different part of the American character and psyche than we have now, too, isn't it? I mean, that was the American psyche. We would die for a cause. We would die for a cause in this country once upon a time, and we weren't afraid to do so. Better, for example, dead than red was something Ronald Reagan spoke about even as president. As he died to make men holy, we shall die to make men free. Free. Give me liberty or give me death. Live free or die. These were America. These were the American ethics. Um, you're looking at me like I'm wrong, but no, my point I, I, is this: that is gone. That I, is, and gone. that's the point I was going to. I think you've gone to the extreme. And why I would say that is, I still meet men and women in uniform who understand why they're wearing that uniform. I've met fairly recently uh, younger men and women in uniform who. Uh, have served in Afghanistan and in other places and are disappointed by our federal government's failure to understand what they understood, why they were there. And uh, when they were in touch with the Afghani people that they had made free and had sustained their lives and created a, a, a society that was at least stable for many people to exercise their liberties and the beauty of seeing uh, young women and girls get to go to school, that had powerful impacts on these people. And so uh, I don't think it's dead in our deep soul. I do think it's somewhat asleep. I, I, do, I am saddened by the fact that we have seen our political parties turned into bastions of extremism in many instances, not everybody, uh, that are then used to... Um, beat the other side about the head and shoulders. Um, I am unelectable. You you sometimes challenge me on that precisely because, as I think a, a very conservative Republican, I can at least empathize with the other side and try to understand their perspective and look for solutions that might bring us together. Uh, it was noted today at a luncheon that, that uh, as a mayor, I had to create compromise. That's what the person in the middle chair has to do. Every other council member gets to spout off on whatever their pet issue is and hold the ground on any specific item. But the person in that middle chair has to bring it together to consensus so that the city can make a decision as a group, because that's the only way decisions get made, and move on. And that's why, in part, I say I'm unelectable, because I was the guy in the middle of the chair creating compromise out of chaos. And we don't have people in those positions anymore. And uh, true conservatives may now belittle Bob Dole. I don't. Uh, any more than I belittle Ronald Reagan. He had to create compromise. He was not in charge of the Congress. He had a Democratic Senate and House. And he still led this country and made huge policy changes. But he had to compromise to get there. And purists would fault him for that. And the answer was it was uh, his skill of saying he wanted two loaves and would settle for one that got us a long way along the road to retain some conservative values, reducing taxes from 72 percent to to uh, 35 percent effectively, uh, more or less, uh, and reducing capital gains rates, those kinds of things. Why is that important? It's not about the numbers. It's that individuals then had the incentive to go out and do what they did and build this society and do exactly the things, as you noted in another show, that it was um, 
uh, Senator Kennedy, the late Senator Kennedy, just before he was shot, talking about that the best the best social welfare program uh, is a job. That was the kind of leadership we had in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party that would create compromises and great results. And we long for that and need for that. And, and Seth, you're the kind of person who speaks to those values that can bring others to the table. Uh, and uh, this cycle may not be a good one for anybody right now, but I'm hoping that uh, in not too far off that you'll think about helping to lead this <laughs> society back to great results. I'll run if you run. Hugh, right. What Reagan understood, what you said is right. He understood the principle of compromise. He would never compromise on principle. That's the trick. Same about you. Bless you, sir. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Hugh and I were uh, trying to figure out how we should end the show, and of course we should do it with uh, FDR's uh, speech to Congress on December 8th. How did he start it, Hugh? That's probably the easiest one because it's one of the most famous uh, sentences, I think, ever spoken by a president. December 7th, 1941, a date which shall live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Pretty clear. And I sometimes wonder about whether he was wrong, as I wonder whether Abraham Lincoln was wrong in the Gettysburg Address. The world will little note, but we can never forget what they did here, right? Uh, I wonder if we've forgotten. I wonder if this day is still a day that shall live in infamy. But one of the things I love about the kind of speech Democrat, speeches Democrats used to give, speeches like Franklin Roosevelt, is they would have no truck with the modern sensibility. This is how he finished that speech. You opened it with a day that should live in infamy. He ended it by saying, with confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph. So help us. God, I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, a state of war has existed. You don't see those kinds of adjectives and adverbs anymore. You just don't. That's how they used to talk. In another part of the speech, he calls it a crusade. I remember when George W. Bush had to apologize for calling our war a crusade. Franklin Roosevelt can say it in 1941. George W. Bush can't say it in 2001. That's a distance of travel, isn't it? When uh, men are angels, no government will be necessary. But until that time... We're stuck with what we've got, but it's better than everything else. And it's not forever, right? It's not permanent. It, it doesn't have to be permanent, and the way we're acting, it certainly won't be. So I call on everyone listening. It's time. Well, uh, welcome. <laughs> it's been one of those days. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth. He's Hugh. Class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.